Welcome to the Knowledge for Teachers podcast. My name is Brendan Lee, and I will be chatting to researchers, teachers, and experts about what evidence-informed education is and the nuances involved with actually implementing effective and sustainable school-based education. Before we start, I would like to acknowledge the land that we are all on today. I am on the beautiful land of the Darug and Gundungurra people in the lower blue mountains of New South Wales, Australia. I would like to pay respect to the elders both past, present and emerging, who are the traditional custodians of this country. As we learn together today, I would like to extend that respect to any Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people listening today. This land always was and always will be the land of the First Nations people. In today's episode, I chat with former principal Greg Clement. I had wanted to chat to Greg after hearing about how he had transformed Clayton South Primary School from the worst school in the network to the second best within 12 months. Earlier this year, he then happened to release a book, and I thought it would be a great opportunity to dig into some of the key parts from it. In our chat, you will find out how a speech pathologist set Greg on the science of of reading pathway, how he got buy-in from staff in the community, and we go through his three-year action plan. Here is my chat with Greg Clement. It gives me great pleasure to introduce today's guest, Greg Clement. He's a formal principal, current educational consultant, and now an author. Greg, can you tell us a bit about your journey and how you ended up in the position that you're in today? Yeah. Um, So I think it was probably 2017 that I decided I'd like to become a principal. Um, I'd been working as a leading teacher at a small school and thought that um, I was ready for the next step up. I set myself a five-year plan to, to do that. Uh, I was going to apply for assistant principal jobs and work my way up slowly. Um, it didn't end up being the case. So within nine months, I was a principal of, of wanting to be one. Um, I went out to a small school um, just out of Sunbury in Victoria. Uh, there was only 35 students in the school and I was a teaching principal. So I had a prep to three class of 23 kids with an unusually high rate of kids with dyslexia. Um, and I had to admit I had no idea what to do Um, and just I guess being the principal as well as the classroom teacher I couldn't just sit back and say um, these are my low students which I'd previously done and have the low group a couple of times and I I didn't know where to start um, and I can uh, admit that so I went out and hired a speech pathologist to come work at the school and we were really lucky that we got someone amazing named Kirsty Kelly and she came out and she sort of had a look at some of the students and I said to her you can have all of these students and I gave her half the school she said that is not how this is going to work we're going to fix your tier one teaching in the school Um, I'm going to be purely tier three intervention with some of the kids with dyslexia and that's how it went so she started informing me about what the science of reading was because I had no idea Um, and we went right back to basics and she um, said I need a budget I said have whatever you want so she yep. went and bought <laughs> decodable books and yeah. resources and everything that she'd need to set us up as a school. Um, and then she helped train the staff and inform the community of what we're doing. Um, and very quickly, you could see these kids starting to learn to read and kids that were in grade three and couldn't read a word starting to pick up decodable books and read them. Um, parents were noticing it. Teachers were noticing it. Aides were noticing it. Um, So that was sort of where my journey started. Um, I then moved back to Melbourne to be closer to my kids and to Clayton South Primary School. 
Um, and first thing I did there was get a speech pathologist on board again. Yeah. That was that was the direction. I highly recommend that to to all principals when I chat with them is getting a speech pathologist on staff. Um, and from there, I, I just saw similar patterns and trends. I looked at our data and um, it wasn't great. And um, admittedly, I was told by somebody, you've just inherited the worst school in the network. So uh, that was, that was again, another challenge. And um, I guess I'm a big believer in what um, you put out is what you get back. So if you've got positive energy um, and you have a vision for something that that's what will come out. So I made a folder on my computer that day that was called best school in the network. And I put all my research and all the things I read and interesting articles and activities for the classroom and professional readings for staff into this folder. We put all of our data and our trackers into this folder. Um, and just coincidentally, we ended up being the second best school in the network by the end of that first year. But coming well, from yeah. the worst to the second best, um, we made really quick progress. And, and that was noticeable in the community and, and with teachers as well. So I guess that's where my interest started in this. Yeah, so I guess just kind of backtracking a little bit, um, you know, I love how you said, you know, what you put out is what you get back. When you first started at Clayton South, like what were, what was currently happening? Well, um, there was no explicit teaching. Uh, in fact, one teacher said to me, what is explicit teaching? Um, there was no instructional model. There were no planners um, and a lot of sitting at desks. So I guess the first thing I did when I walked in and made me enemy number one, but I, I walked in and removed the desks from the classrooms because that was all I was seeing was teachers sitting at desks. Um, and we made yeah quite a big shift in that first year. Um, and that was a challenging year uh, for me because there was a lot of pushback on everything yeah. that I did. But I, my motto was everything I'm doing is for the kids. And I knew that making this change would help more kids learn to read and read proficiently across the school and um, I knew the kids at our school were capable of that so I have no regrets and I, and I made it pretty clear that I um, was going to do what I was going to do because it was for the students. Yeah and so uh, how did you go about managing staff through that change process? Uh, it was tricky uh, and especially because COVID hit around that same time so I, I pretty much met the staff at Clayton South for about a month, maybe a month and a half. I think it was late March we went into lockdown. So yeah. I had a month and a half to make an impression and then I pretty much uh, tried to work on rebuilding that, I guess, after um, maybe changing, uh, taking out the desks wasn't wasn't the best move. But yeah, so it was, it was a... It was a um, a long haul process. It wasn't something that was a quick fix at Clayton South when I was there. So um, I, I started writing the blog as well to sort of get staff understanding where we, the direction we're heading. And also yeah. part of my vision for the school was that Clayton South would become a mentor or a showcase school for other schools and other teachers. So yeah. I wanted staff to understand the direction we were moving into at the same time as informing other schools what we were doing in school too, so that, that that vision could come true. Yeah, you know, I think one of the things that I find different to your journey is that often it's teachers that first engage with the science of reading or science of learning. And so they're then trying to engage their principal or school leader, uh, you know, with what all of this is, whereas having someone already in that position do you think that made a bit of a difference? 
Not at all. <laughs> I wish it did. Yeah. Um, so I had the opposite of what most schools are encountering. So most schools, the teachers want this change and leadership yes. potentially don't do it, which is why I created the blog Principles of Reading because I wanted the principals to read it initially and yeah. it just became big with teachers instead. Um, but I had teachers pushing back on me, but I had teachers coming to visit our school and then I had to be selective of which classrooms they could go and watch because there were yeah. pockets of best practice and then there were staff that were resisting. So. I, yeah, we were set up to potentially um, do really good things, but there was a lot of pushback from the staff, unfortunately, which is kind of the opposite of what happens at most schools. Yeah, yes. Uh, interesting how you, you said that. And and I guess part of the, the problem there that we all have is that you're trying to change people's mind and, and you know support them through it. But if they're not open to change, if they already believe that what they're doing is right, it doesn't matter how much evidence you throw in front of them. You know, one of the things I've read about is how like feelings don't care about facts. And, yeah. you know, so you're, you've got to kind of really get into the nitty gritty of what they care about. And um, sometimes it can it can be quite tough to, to get them. To, I guess you might have had a, a couple of people move on. Yeah, we did in the end. Um, we call them the laggards, the people that just really, really push back and will not change. And they'd rather change schools or retire than, and eventually make that change. Um, yeah, it was it was it was a tricky one, especially because we had so many teachers coming through the school that my own staff could see the interest from other teachers, but didn't want to sort of make make the change themselves. They, and in saying that, there were some really good teachers that did make the change and did make the effort. And um, it started down in our junior school, so our prep to two teachers were the first ones to take it on board. Um, for me, the, the big thing in getting staff to at least give it a go was just sharing our data. Um, I shared our NAPLAN data with the staff. We had 47% or worse um, kids in the bottom two bands across the poor literacy components of NAPLAN, um, which is, and that's why I was told you've, got the, you've just inherited the worst school in the network. We, we had some really poor results which yeah. made it easy for me to share that this isn't working. What we're doing isn't working. There has to be a better way. And, and there was a better way. Um, I just had to let staff know what that was because as you would know, chatting to other people, it's, it's not in our um, universities. Most of them aren't showing staff and new teachers that this is what works. Yeah. And, and so, you know, you spoke about uh, how you like to bring that positive energy and, uh, you know, what you put out is what you get back in. Um, what sort of things did you do to build that culture? Um, we, we had little teams. So a lot of staff, once they were understanding what I was trying to do, we had little teams of teachers leading different parts of the big six, which became their little project and their baby in a way and they yeah. would do the readings themselves and push it across the school so it became less about me pushing it through but more about staff owning different components so someone had phonics and someone created an extended code scope and sequence for the year three to year six teachers to use because they weren't sure what to do yeah um, somebody became morphology focused and they would be pushing out activities you could do with your class and in the end, we got a scope and sequence created by this team. Um, we had the phonological awareness for phonemic awareness team that would push out and they ended up finding Hegarty, which we used in the beginning. 
Um, so everyone sort of did their own research in a way because it was COVID. So I, I sort of put everyone into little teams and because the teachers knew each other, it became more about them than about me making a change. They researched their own parts, found activities to share, pushed that out, um, provided the help that the teachers would need because they looked into what Hegarty was, for instance, and they could explain it to staff and model that for staff. And that became kind of where we, the direction we went was pushing it back onto the teachers. Yeah, so you, you found that helped the buy-in and, and um, you know, give yeah. that sense of autonomy? Yeah, and it was, and just celebrating the wins as well was a big one for us in, in changing our culture. Even the smallest of wins we would celebrate as a staff. So I remember one example, we had a little boy with intellectual disability. He was grade two, um, couldn't read a word, hadn't read a word since he started the school. Yeah. Um, once we changed the focus um, and he became, he learned Sappin and went off and used decodables with his um, teaching assistant. Um, he started reading and his, his um, teacher aide was running around the school like a headless chook saying, this is working, it's working, he's reading. So they became our biggest advocates. And, um, because the staff had been around so long as well, they would tell the parents what was happening and the changes we were making and that they were working. So they did a lot of my talking on my behalf to parents they spent a lot of time with, which which helped get the buy-in with the community too, that they that trust, I guess. They they trusted what I was doing was for their kids. Yeah, that's that's um, awesome because I guess that can be part of the problem as well, is it the community buy-in? What yeah. what else did you kind of do to get them on board? Um, again, during COVID, we couldn't have the community in the school, um, yeah. down in Melbourne. So it was a lot of just pushing it out through the newsletter. So every newsletter was a weekly newsletter. I'd write a piece on the big six, each of the big six and explain the research in simple terms and why we were doing this and, and how it would be different to what they're used to. So they were used to coming home with leveled readers and they'd be constantly asking what levels my child on, just getting yeah. that mindset change in the junior school that, we were no longer using those level readers for the kids to read. Uh, it ended up becoming that the, the parents, um, the kids could pick the leveled readers, but um, from level nine beyond, so that there was a bit of a storyline or non-fiction books, and the parents actually read those to the kids. Um, that's where it evolved to, so they could still have their leveled readers, but the kids were reading decodables to their parents. And how did the community respond to that? Yeah, really well. We had a really supportive community, so that I will give them that. We're, we're pretty lucky that they're really supportive families. Um, and like I was saying before, the trust was built pretty quickly that I'm making changes for your child. It's not just for the sake of change. Um, and they saw the results pretty quick as well. So our, our data improved out of sight very quickly. Um, we set ourselves a target of... We wanted 0% students in the bottom two bands, and that seemed pretty ambitious from where we were starting at 47%. Yeah. Um, within three years, we hit 0%. So in the first year, we went from 47% to eight, and then six, and then zero. Wow. So, and we had kids traveling to us from passing 20 schools, um, had dyslexia, had heard what we were doing, and wanted to come to us. We didn't exclude anybody from that plan, and, and those kids were still um, performing where they should be. In reading yeah you, um, you briefly mentioned before about the leveled readers and I, and I feel like one of the things that gets a lot of school leaders 
um, you know, stuck is a, a sunk cost fallacy. So, you know, where you feel you need to stick with something because of the time and money that you've spent yes. on it in the past. Yeah. Uh, you know, with the classic example being uh, the resistance to get rid of leveled routers because schools have invested, you know, with, you know thousands of dollars in, in buying them. Yeah. Uh, you know, how, what do you say to, to school leaders uh, that kind of had that mindset? It's worth investing in the decodables. Um, and it's not, it's not really chucking everything out. So we put levels one to nine or A to G in a storeroom because they just were too predictable in patent text. We, we didn't need them. So we put yep. them in a storeroom just to start off with. Um, and then we, we still use the other ones that we had. Um, Alice and Clark's got a really good video outlining why we don't use the predictable and patent text. And that's a good one that I would share with my principal if it was me in that situation. Yeah. Um, it's, it's fantastic. And then it goes into decodables and why we use those for kids. But for me, um, I didn't physically spend the money myself, so I didn't have an attachment to it. So it was easier for me to get rid of some of them. Yeah, cool. Uh, and then, you know, so you, you spoke about how quickly you were able to make the improvements. And and I find like a lot of schools, they they kind of, they start this journey, but they don't see the results as quickly. What do you kind of put it down to as to why your results skyrocketed so quickly? Yeah, I don't think our kids were as bad as the data was presenting. Yeah. Um, we just had very compliant students. And if they were told, do one hour of silent reading in the morning as your reading hour, that's what they would do. If they were given a worksheet with no explanation, that's what they would do. Um, I just don't think they were being taught the right way, to be honest. Yeah. Um, and I, and being as blunt as that, I think we got really good results because that's what our kids were capable of. Yeah. Um, and once you do make the change, you'll see that that's what you, you, students are capable of reading proficiently. It's just they need to be taught explicitly. Yeah, it's a it's a good point that you make there, and and I guess that that's part of the thing is that every school is different, and it's got its own context and and different issues that you might have to navigate your, your way around. Um, but yeah, you know what you're talking about there in terms of you know good teaching is still good teaching, and it's going to make a difference uh, no matter where you are. Yeah. Um, what sort of so just going back to you know like. A bit of an overview of what makes a good principal. You know, what what sorts of things do you believe are the most important qualities? Um, I think having a vision and sharing that vision. So communication. Um, you have to have a direction. So you can't just walk in and have no purpose. So I think um, looking at the data when I walked in, I had to quickly create a vision. Luckily, that was my background was the reading side of things. So our vision quickly became around um, that all staff had to believe that every student can learn if they're given the right time and the right supports. And that became our motto at the school. And that comes from Lynn Sharrett's Clarity book. Yeah. Um, everyone had to have that belief. You couldn't say, accept him or accept her. We had to believe that with the right supports, everyone could um, make the right progress. And it was the same with the staff. With the right supports, every member of my staff could be a good teacher. Um, and I guess our other vision was just having as many students reading proficiently by the time they leave Clayton South Primary School. Um, and so we signed the, the reading pledge from 5.5 to put it out there, put that on our website, that that was what we're gonna to stick to. And again, once you put something out there, I think into the world, it 
you have to follow uh, back it up and follow it through. Um, uh, being um, out there as well. So being seen is another quality for a good principal. So I was on yard duty every morning, every afternoon, most recess and lunch as well. Um, really knowing, getting to know the kids and getting to know the community. Um, and I think when staff see the principal out there doing those things as well, they know that you're on their side. Yeah, and, and so those sorts of things, did you just kind of pick them up from your experience in schools or, uh, you know, what made you want to be visible and, and have uh, a clear vision for your um, staff? Um, I just know that to get buy-in from teachers and to get the trust factor from parents, you have to be seen. You have to be out there. And, and I know from experience that every move you make or don't make is commented on or noticed by somebody so yeah there's there's yeah. no moment in time that you can just walk past a bit of rubbish and no one's going to see that so it's just making yourself a role model for everybody um and just finding the time to do it i think working in a very small school and there was two or three teachers in total at the first school i was principal at we all had to do yard duty every single day there was no getting out of that um, we were all teaching classes every day. I was the PE teacher, the art teacher, the pre <laughs> teacher part-time. But you're yeah. no getting out of it. So I think it's that work ethic, yeah. um, being in a small school. And, and I, I feel for small school principals, um, I really think that they need to put an assistant principal in every school, regardless of size, because yeah. there's a lot more complexities, a lot more issues in a smaller school with less staff and less money to spend on things that you really need. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, I'm actually working in a uh, a small school at the moment, one day a week as yeah. um, as an assistant principal. Um, yeah. But yeah, there's a teaching principal, and so for the other four days, she doesn't have any uh, support from you know a middle leader at all. Yeah. And yeah, just seeing the amount of hats, like you mentioned, that she's got to yeah. uh, you know <laughs> take on board and and. It's not like, you know, even when you've got a smaller school with less students, it's not like all of those administrative um, in administrative duties go away. You still That's have right. to do all of those. You've still got to deal with the parents. You've still got to deal with behavior issues. Yeah. Um, and you're in Whilst the classroom. you're teaching. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. So, you know, what you already mentioned that we can, um, we could hopefully have at least an assistant principal in, in schools like that. But is there anything else that um, you, you would, advise principals or even teachers within those sorts of schools to, to do? Yeah, all the training you can. I know it means you're out of the school, but it'll help in the long run. So I, as I said, I went from classroom teaching straight into the principal position. I had to learn emergency management, OHS, and I was audited in OHS in my first term as a principal. So yeah. I had to learn all of that really quickly. And, and it does mean being out of the school um, at certain times, but as much PD as you can. I think the best PD is for principals. They, um, once I became a principal, you get access to some of the best professional development. Yeah. Um, and it's just making yourself available to do them. You need that time to learn it. Otherwise it's gonna bite you in the bum later on. Yeah, and, and what about, you know, probably the biggest thing I find principals struggling with is just managing the workload and prioritizing the right things. Mm. How, how do you go about that? For me, I, I just created a list at the start of every day, had a jotter or a notepad next to me and just wrote down all the things I wanted to get through. Some days I got through none of it. Some days I, I ticked all the boxes. 
Um, and if you get through nothing, you keep that same list for the next day and just making sure you work your way through it. That was, that was for me. Everyone is different. Um, and if you've got an assistant principal or a leading teacher, you can pass some of those jobs off. But I didn't have that at either of the two schools. Yeah. Um, so it was just, yeah, I just created a list and worked through it. But there's no easy solution. You, what you said before is spot on. No matter how, even if it's a small school, you've still got every administration role that a big school principal has. Yeah, it's that, a, that it's just a makes it hard. Yeah. yeah. Uh, look, let's talk about your book. So Transform uh, Achieving Educational Excellence Through the Science of Reading. Firstly, I just want to say I love how practical it is. You know, I've, I've read a lot of uh, books on, you know, the science of reading and uh, educational research books. But, yeah, I, uh, I really enjoyed reading it from the point of view of a school leader. And I, I think that's probably a point of difference because there's so many um, books out there which are kind of more research focused. Um, yeah. But I like how you're, yeah, you, you've got that point of view from a principal and then providing those, um, the, the practical application sections uh, to each chapter. Um, and I, yeah, I, I wanted to ask you, like, why, why did you include the section on going it alone? Um, because as we spoke about before, uh, it's usually the opposite happens, is that the principal's not on board. And once you've read enough information, it's very hard to trick your own brain into using a PM or a Fontes and Fennell in prep when you know that it's not the right thing to do. So I think I put that section in there because there are um, cheap or free alternatives that you can use in your classroom without having to ask for a chunk of budget taken out, um, especially the, the leadership aren't um, in favour of that move. But I just found like, um, listening to teachers speak and talk online, they want to make these changes but don't know how. And I think yeah. if you if you um, think I don't have the budget um, to buy decodables, there are free options online on the Spelled SA website. If you're thinking I don't have the budget to do phonemic awareness, Hegarty's only $165 or Teachers Pay Teachers have activities you can do online as well. Um, I just want to I guess that section was in there just to show that it can be done on a budget. It doesn't have to yeah. be um, an expensive option for your classroom. And, yeah, just because I know that not all leadership teams are uh, that supportive with it. Yeah, I, I thought it was uh, a really nice section to have in there, uh, you know, because that, that's basically when I engage with teachers, most of the time they are, you know, lone rangers in their pursuit yeah. of making changes within the school. Um, and so, yes, yeah, really good to see that there's options out there that don't have to, um, I guess, break the bank. And yeah. a lot of the times, if you are just trying to implement things within your own classroom, especially at the start, you yeah. can still do it. Yeah. That was that was definitely the reason for that. Yeah. Um, look, one of the other things that stood out was the the action plan section. Yeah. Yeah. And I like how, you know, you're, you're basically provided a... Um, a diary of the the different steps that you've taken, you know, throughout yeah. that, that process. Um, yeah. Did you did you kind of keep a diary of things at the start, and um, or, or did you have to to go back and, and work out what you've done at each stage? No, so luckily that's where the blog came in handy. So yeah, I yeah, pretty much blogged as I was going. Um, and so originally I was going to release the book as a series of blogs, um, and then sort of went down the track of. The first half of the book is all of the research around different areas in simple terms and 
And then the second half of the book is more the action plan of what we actually did at Clayton South Primary School. Um, yeah, the, the blog was a good reminder of the steps we took and, and I put it in sort of in a three-year uh, plan and term by term. So I think the biggest thing I see schools doing is trying to make every move at the same time. And I wanted to put, sort of get it out there that we started very slowly. Um, term one of the first year we started, we just did a lot of research and looking at our data and investigating um, programs initially that we could use. Um, yeah. I like the idea of a program as a starting piece because if you don't know how to teach phonemic awareness, it gives you a script in Hegarty and you can just go from there. Um, and we sort of dropped it off as we got further in and staff had um, just knew the practice. Um, and then it, we only really did phonics and phonemic awareness in the first half of our first year. So I see a lot of schools trying to get everything out in one go and, and then teachers collapsing or it just doesn't um, go through. So that, that was the reason for that. Yeah. And so did you kind of have this plan before you started uh, at Clayton South or was it more um, as you were there, you, you started to look at the data and, and figure out, well, this is probably going to be our best bet. And, and we'll start with this. How, how did you go about um, working out those steps? Yeah, I kind of, I obviously wanted to bring the science of reading with me from my previous school. Yeah. Um, I had the solution ready to go. I just had to find a problem. So I just actively found a problem, which was the data and yeah. put that in everyone's faces and then provided them with the solution. Yeah. So nice. It was strategic for sure. But Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. So where'd you go from there? Wait, sorry, from after? Uh, yes, yeah, so from looking at phonemic awareness and, and phonics, yeah. um, what was the next sort of So thing? the next term, um, we went into fluency. So uh, we found, I think it was Steph from the Reading Science and Schools page had posted about um, fluency pairs. So I think one of the staff found that. We all watched the video and did a little bit of research around um, effect size on how many repeated reads have the greatest impact and we decided on four repeated reads and um, then we just put that through the whole school so right from prep they were reading word lists decodable word lists up to grades five and six um, reading passages of text um, I think one of the bigger biggest things now that I sort of share with schools when I go out and speak with them is um, using chat GPT to generate your um, passages for for a fluency read so yeah. you can link it to your inquiry or link it to your science and ask for 140 words for grade six because that's their expected reading level at a sixth grade level. And you just type that into your prompt and you get um, something that's worth reading for the kids for the week rather than just finding a random text for them to read. Yeah. Yeah, that's a cool idea. Um, so, yeah, you've mentioned quite a few different people that either you, you had come in and present or... Uh, you know, resources that you use. Do you want to just yeah. talk about some of those people? Yeah, so when we got to vocabulary, we, had, we were lucky enough that Amina McLean agreed to chat to staff that day via Zoom and talk about best practice in vocab and how many words the kids could handle each week and activities you could do and how to link that to your knowledge-rich curriculum. Um, we had um, Laura Sunquist from Poimadai Primary School also chat with us about how she creates her PowerPoints um, from the picture storybooks um, to link vocabulary and background knowledge. 
um, and then showed us how to how she creates them. And then we had a whole day PD around creating our own picture storybook PowerPoint slides. Um, I think that was all we had sort of in that first year. Um, yeah. And I guess the, the next part in terms of training, we did a little learner stuff literacy two-day course. And then we all did Port and Gillingham training for five days in the school holidays. So you can see how much buy-in actually happened by the third year that everyone on staff gave up five days of their holidays, including myself and yeah. the Orton Gillingham training, which really kicked off um, a lot of teacher knowledge as well around certain things. So I know that um, when I go out to schools, a big part of what teachers wish they knew was all the sounds each of the letters represent and um, yeah. different spelling generalizations and um, a bit more about morphology and that and syllables that really was kickstarted our knowledge in that from the Orton Gilligan training. So I'd highly recommend that to anyone. Yeah, look, a couple of things um, that I want to touch on there that I don't know if you were intentional with this, but I'd like to know. Uh, the first thing is like sometimes it can help having those external voices coming in and then mm. almost backing up what you're saying, even though you know, I'm, I'm sure you would have had the knowledge yourself just to deliver those presentations. Yeah. Uh, how did you find having those external voices coming in? really helpful it actually reminded me of um another person that spoke because after she finished it we had tony hatton roberts um yeah. speak with us about about, about um, morphology and spelling and yeah. there were a lot of aha moments in the staff room when she yeah. was saying some of the same things i'd been saying um but they didn't they were probably sick of my voice or thinking this is just greg saying this but i think once tony got into some of the detail that they were going, okay, this is some of the stuff we've been doing and hearing. And it was a bit of a validation, but definitely was strategic to get a few more voices in there. Um, so it was term three and term four in the first year that we had Amina, Laura and Tony speak to staff. And that was definitely strategic because it had just been myself pushing it previous to that. Yeah. And, and the other thing as well that I picked up on was how you're actively involved in learning as well. Uh, yeah. You know, and, and a lot of the research supports that, you know, in, in terms of the, the school leader um, being yeah. one of the lead learners. Yes, did you definitely. Did you kind of do that intentionally as well? Definitely. Um, I, I've been at schools where you don't see the principal. Yeah. I've been at schools where they haven't turned up to a single staff meeting. Um, I was the opposite. I ran most of our professional learning myself. Um, and I was always at every professional learning that I wasn't presenting. And that was again around that being visible and seen by staff because I know that when you're at a school and the principal never turns up to meetings, it gets talked about. Um, yeah. If I was to miss a meeting, I'm sure it'd be talked about. So I, I definitely <laughs> made sure I was at all of our meetings. And I and I love learning. I don't want to stop yeah. learning. So I um, I enjoyed listening to all of our guests presenters, and um, it was nice not to have to be the one always presenting. So it was I learned heaps just listening to them. Yeah, and I think the other. Uh, thing that you can get from that is that it shows your school that this is a priority. You know, you're prioritizing curriculum and instruction yes. and what's happening in classrooms. Um, you know, whereas what I see traditionally at a lot of schools is that the principal might, you know, uh, run professional learning, but it's not usually to do with curriculum and instruction at all. It's more to do with maybe something to do with behavior or well-being or administrative, yeah. um, you know, whatever oh, yeah. yes yeah. yeah um and and so you know from a teacher's perspective they're not seeing that the principal either has a knowledge 
in you know good curriculum and, and instruction or um you know that that it's a priority for the school yeah and in defense of a lot of principals as well is we wish we had the time to be in the classroom i guess that's what yeah. we originally yeah. we, yeah. we were teachers originally so all of us yes. love being in the classroom just the admin takes away that opportunity a lot of the time i i made you know, time to do it i was the school crt most of the time i split that role with the leading teacher we'd take turns covering um staff um i loved getting back in the room and, and utilizing some of the stuff i'd learned because i was kind of leading the way with the science of reading but not getting a chance to actually do it myself so i loved yeah. getting in and, and modeling that using that with the students and i took the load off the staff by doing all of the dibbles assessment and hegarty assessment um, yeah. for the teachers and then going through the data with them um, just to take that load off them having to actually do all the assessing yeah, and I guess it's another thing that you've got to consider when you're at a smaller school as well that you don't necessarily have all the excess staff that can do those sorts of things yeah exactly um, you know so now knowing what you know now and, and having gone through that experience um, you know is there anything that you would do differently I think for me, because I just walked into the school, I probably didn't take the time to assess the culture uh, as well as I could have. And that's me being critical of myself. I think I made a few changes like taking out the desks because of something that I saw on multiple occasions, but didn't take the time to ask them why you're sitting at your desk. I probably wouldn't have been given an answer I liked, but again, I'm assuming but that was probably something I didn't do was just understand the culture of that school. Most staff had been there since the early nineties and eighties. Wow. Yeah. 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 Majority of the staff. Yeah. So I did walk into a place that was very settled in their ways. Um, and I probably ruffled a few feathers by changing things so quickly, but um, that, so that's probably the one thing I'd do is, is probably just take it slower and, and ask a few more questions. So any any new principals listening, just take the time to ask the questions rather than have assumptions, which I did. Yeah, it's a good point that you make. And, and it can be, I guess, hard as well because you know you start and you and you want to make your mark or you've got all of these ideas and you, you're finally yeah. in this school and uh, you want to put them into to practice. But uh, yeah, you, you're probably right there. If we if we just go in all gung ho, then we're yeah. going to lose a lot of people along the way. It's almost like treating it like an acting gig for the first six months where you don't make changes, you just observe. Yeah. I I think I, I'm just impatient. I saw enough and just made some changes, but I probably, yeah, could have held back the two terms and, and just watched what was happening. But I think um, COVID forced my hand in a way. I just had to make those changes because of what was happening. And, and you couldn't focus on the whole curriculum during COVID. It was really reading, writing and maths became the, the big three. So I had to get them right. Yeah, so you mentioned maths then, and we've kind of just been talking about the science of reading stuff. But, um, you know, what, what sort of things were you doing uh, in terms of you know, numeracy? So we, we went over to eventually, so we eventually yep. got to a point where we're using an explicit direct instruction approach in numeracy as well. We yep. went and visited Bentley West Primary School and had a look at what they do um, and saw David Malkunas, who's doing fantastic things. And, and I guess we were just in the process of making those changes when I left. So we did have a massive focus on reading. I had yep. a learning specialist who behind the scenes was pushing out some EDI stuff. 
we yep. found a website called Edusary, um, which yep. had ready-made lessons in the EDI format. So teachers were experimenting with that in their classrooms, um, experimenting with daily reviews, um, and just trying to become more explicit than what we were previously. But again, most of the time, the first two years was was reading and COVID, so it was <laughs> very tricky. Yeah, and would you recommend kind of um, starting like that, where you focus more on say English and then move into mathematics, or yeah, uh, you know, would you maybe try to have both changing at once? Probably not both changing at once in my situation because of all the pushback. Yeah. If I tried to change yeah. any more, I think I would have broken the camera's back. But yeah, the getting obviously, if you can't read, you can't read a maths question. If you can't comprehend, you're not going to understand what a maths question is asking you to do. So we chose to start with the reading, uh, and then we had that sort of reading, writing, literacy two year phase, and then we we um, intentionally made maths our focus in the third year but still making modifications in reading. So our third year was when we did the Orton-Gillingham training. So we then rejigged our whole um, structure of a lesson, but we were mostly, uh, all of our um, planning and um, community of practice and all of PLC was all on maths. Yeah, okay. So, uh, you know, because a, a lot of schools are looking at, you know, what sort of changes they can make. And a lot of times they'll engage with that science of reading side first. And then they either go down like looking at the science of learning in general. Yeah. Uh, and, and then thinking, oh, maybe we'll take like an explicit instruction model or they might start looking at mathematics as well. So, yeah, it's just interesting hearing from you as to, to what sort of path you've taken and, and what sort of things um, yeah, you've, you've thought about as well along the way. Yeah. Um, so next up, I just wanted to ask you about your current role. So you mentioned earlier that you're no longer at Clayton South. So what are you doing now? So now I do consulting in the science of reading field, the science of learning field. So right now I'm sitting in a small little town in southeast Queensland called Wombai. Uh, it's on the Sunshine Coast. Uh, and I'm there for four, the next four days presenting and working with their staff. And um, so I'll be working in planning teams for the next four days and looking at their data um, and observing them in the classrooms. But yeah, most of my role is either presenting PD at curriculum days, um, but it's now evolved into, it was, it started off with just a one day thing, but I think principals have realized that to make the change, it can't just be a one-off session. So I'm starting to get booked quite a bit with school repeat visits now and um, pre presenting quite a bit of PD on different areas. But um, I'm really loving this role. It's uh, probably, I think, sort of fate as to how I've got to this point. I think that whole move to that small country school just kicked off a chain of events that has led me to chatting with you on a podcast and things I would never have imagined. But yeah, getting into this consulting role was, was a bit of a change in pace as well because I've always been a teacher and absolutely love being a principal. Um, but I think COVID and the, just the burnout associated with COVID as well down in Melbourne, um, just led me down a different path and my passion became reading and that's that's what I'm doing now. Yeah, and so how have schools gotten in touch with you? Um, mostly word of mouth, but um, we're through my email, just Consulting at gmail.com. Um, most of my queries come through that uh, avenue, but it, once I'm at one school, they pass my name on to the next school and then the next school and that's sort of just been how it's worked so far. Um, yeah, and, 
Are you seeing similar themes in terms of the schools that you're visiting? Yeah, I am. A lot of schools have decodables and the principal will tell me we've got decodables, but then they're not being used or not being used um, efficiently. So, um, yeah, it's, they do see the same sort of things. Um, and it's good that, that, and I do make a point of it when I start speaking, that it, your leadership team has got me out here because they're supporting this change. Um, yeah. And that's a big move for a lot of principals is to make that change. Yeah, because a lot of times their boss doesn't know about change and the benefits, and it's not something that we're all taught. So it is a it is a big risk and a big move to make it. So that's something I do point out to the staff when I start is that your principal is showing a leap of faith here in, in doing this. Um, but yeah, it's it's been really good. A lot of the staff get really get a kick out of the morphology I'm I'm, I'm seeing. Um, yeah, it's something that they're not um, au fait with and something that they see straight away through the activities and the hands-on stuff that I do in my PDs that um, how important it is for the students and how much the students really enjoy doing it because the staff don't want to stop. Once we start our activities, the staff want to keep going. So awesome. they, and then all you hear them say is, if we're loving this, just imagine how much the kids will love this. Yeah, it's, it's one of the things I uh, spoke to Lynn Stone on an earlier episode and she just spoke about how important it is for teachers to have knowledge of words mm. and make up of words and it's it's definitely something that you're not necessarily taught uh you know through initial teacher education and we know that we're not getting this sort of education uh, at most schools yeah. so it, you're 100 right it's it's something new for teachers to learn themselves yeah. uh and then they've got to go and teach it to their students as well so it's interesting and um promising as well that teachers are so enthusiastic when you are delivering that that uh, professional learning for them oh no definitely definitely very engaged um teachers which is great and how have you found the experience of and i know you've done a, a bit of it uh in, in your principal role but how have you found the experience of actually delivering professional learning to teachers and in particular teachers that you don't actually have a relationship with um i think back to when we had um amina mclean and tony and there's no prejudging. Um, they're not just hearing it from the same voice. It's somebody else coming in. And I remember being really appreciative that they came in and helped out. So I know that um, it's it's always good to hear it from a different voice and someone who's been through this as well, someone who's been in a school. I think that's probably my point of difference is I've been a school principal. I've made these changes, seen the results. Um, and again, that trust factor of it's happened at our school. It actually works. Um, yeah. I share all of our data with the schools right from the start to show that it does work. And then um, we just take a really slow approach. Um, there's schools that I'm working with and we're, we're doing exactly following my action plan and the staff are absolutely loving it. Yeah. And, and so do you find that you're, you're kind of doing a lot of educating with, with the, the principals initially as well? Yes. Yeah. yeah. So usually my first meeting is with the leadership and a lot of the time they don't have much knowledge of what I'm presenting and they will, I've had, some of them come out and say, I'm not on, I'm on the fence or I'm not on board with this yeah, yeah, straight yeah. out to me, which I appreciate because then I can yeah. get more into the nitty gritty of what it is. If they already know a little bit, it's a different presentation, but if they know nothing, it's, um, I can go into more depth about what it is and the changes we made. But it, it's definitely confronting sometimes when, when the principal will say, I'm not on board or I'm, you know, I don't know anything about this. But yeah, it, it, they get a lot out of it. The principals I've found have always attended the sessions and really got a lot out of it. 
And what have you found has been the, the that bit of information or knowledge that has gotten people over the other side? Um, I think for the principals, it's the data. Once they see that yeah. improvement, a lot of them have said to me, um, I knew there was something wrong. I couldn't put my finger on it. I wasn't sure what it was that I've got this amount of kids still in the bottom two bands or this amount of kids getting to grade six, still not reading. I just wasn't yeah. sure what the actual problem was um, until you explain the science and all the evidence-based practices and the assessments and everything to them in depth that they start to, it just clicks. Yeah, it's interesting how you, you spoke about the data there. And I guess it comes back to how, a lot of schools are judged. You know, we are judged uh, on on that data, the numbers, yeah. and, and you mentioned NAPLAN before. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's uh, it's an interesting point there, and I think it's probably good advice as well for for schools who are looking to make those changes, and mm-hmm. um, you know, if they're looking to present to principals or to other schools that that it's um, yeah, you know, that the numbers do matter in that sense. I think, and it's really good because once they do their first dibbles assessment a lot of those schools that have said we don't need this or our kids are really good readers they come out very low on the first time they do dibbles and it sort of shows um, the teachers that getting down to the nitty-gritty and the specifics of reading the kids don't have those necessary skills and it's yeah cool they, so, they see straight away yeah uh so as we kind of get to the end of, of this uh chat what other bits of knowledge do you feel more teachers need to have? So it might be something to do with, you know, frequently asked questions that you've had or common misconceptions that you've come across. But yeah, um, yeah what's something that's had a, a huge difference on your own development? Um, I think when I go out to schools, the lack of knowledge around morphology and the meanings behind different affixes and root words and base words and um, the lack of understanding there. Um, and also... Um, knowledge of spelling generalizations is something that staff really want to know about um, and the history of our language. So when I get into talking about showing the sound cards and they'll say, but we've got this little boy here who already knows his sounds and showing them alternatives where you can say, you know, G makes G, but you can say, what's the second sound? And it's J when followed by E, I, or Y. So getting right into the rules and then they'll look at me and go, so there are rules around that. We didn't know this. A lot of those teachers don't know um, spelling generalizations and, and why different sounds represent different letters and um, how many phonemes in spoken English. A lot of we do a little um, kahoot at the start just so I can gauge where the school's at. And yeah, right, some of yeah. the things I pick up on is just a lack of teacher knowledge that is coming through without, you know, we're not being taught this at university. Um, I found for our staff doing the OG training was was the best for that just to get teacher knowledge up there so as you said before teacher knowledge is the big is the biggest thing that we need in our staff yeah so og training uh and and looking at spelling and and the history of words yeah so if people don't have access to you uh, you know what what sort of advice or where would you uh tell them to head to for, for more information on that um, I guess it depends on which one they're after, but um, some of Lynn Stone's books that you mentioned before, obviously good ones for the spelling. And, the, and um, I think Louisa Motes has a book with the history of English. Yeah. Um, it's, it's just doing a lot of reading, really, and just 
type it into Google, whatever bit of information you're after, type it into Google, and then you're just going to have to sift through um, some readings or jump onto that reading science and schools page and ask the question. There's such a supportive community in there that if generally well, what I've seen, you ask a question and there's 150 teachers that want to help you out and give you the answers and advice that you need. So um, one thing about the science of reading community is a really supportive space. So ask the questions to the community and, and people will point you in the right direction. Yeah, that's that's great advice. And and you're right, there's there's so many educators out there who are offering support. Um, and I think part of the reason is that they've had to go through this process themselves as well. So they they know what it's like when either you are um, you know starting uh, by yourself and you're isolated or um, that, you know just that, that feeling that you have when you, you realize that maybe the way you've been doing things isn't the best way to have been teaching and it's quite yeah. confronting when it when it comes to you yeah <laughs> um, exactly yeah yeah so I, I guess do you have any um final words or is there anything else that we we missed out on in our chat today that you wanted to talk about no i just think it's it's a big if you're wanting to get this or if you're a principal and you're trying to get it through to your staff it's just being really sensitive of the fact that until you know better, you can't do better. If you think that what you've been doing and taught at university is best practice, it's very hard to convince someone otherwise that they're doing, they've been doing the wrong thing their whole teaching career. So it is around being very sensitive about the topic and perhaps finding a couple of readings to just slip on their desk or um, bring it up in a sensitive way. That's what I've sort of found over my time. Yeah, great advice. And and so you mentioned before how people can get in contact with you, but um, can you just say that uh, your, your email again? And yeah, it's gregclementconsulting at gmail.com. Awesome. Uh, look, thanks for your time tonight. It's uh, It's thanks, been great Brian. chatting to you and a uh, really, really interesting story and, and you know your journey is inspiring for a lot of people out there. So, yeah, thank you for all that you're doing and, um, yeah, good luck with the, the consultancy stuff. Uh, thanks. Good luck with the podcast. It's fantastic. Thanks, Brendan. Thank you. One of the key points that I took away from this conversation is how change is messy, but despite that, we can still experience success. It's like driving through fog on an unknown road. You might hit a couple of potholes, but if you keep heading in the right direction, the fog will clear and you will eventually arrive at your destination. Or you might even slow down or take an alternative route. But if you know where your destination is, these detours can be just part of the journey. I loved Greg's honesty and an example of this is how he spoke about how he didn't get it all right and that even as he was promoting his school as a model school, he still had teachers who weren't fully on board. Yet, the proof is in the pudding and while standardised tests like NAPLAN aren't everything, going from 47% of students in the bottom two bands for reading to 0% within three years is very impressive. Here are my key takeaways. Greg's purpose is clear in every action that he makes, that everything he did was for his kids. How sometimes bad data can work in your favour. I loved his idea of dividing teachers up into groups to lead different parts of the big six. A study that transformed my thinking around professional learning was reading Thomas Gusky's work on how teacher attitudes don't change until after student outcomes have improved, not after the PL has been provided. Greg provided a perfect example of this in how his teachers jumped on board after the child with the intellectual disability was able to learn to read. I like how he sent 
leveled readers home, but instead had parents read them to their children for knowledge building. He also highlighted the importance of having a shared vision, being visible as a leader, and clear communication. Like Steph Levere in episode 2, Greg also mentioned how, how um, we can use chat GPT to develop passages for fluency pairs. Greg also brought up the importance of teachers having a deep understanding of morphology and the history of our language. He also showed how he leads with the data when discussing changes with principals who are still on the fence. It was great to hear from a principal who was able to articulate the steps that he has taken to transform his school. Make sure you grab his book by the same name, Transform, to find out more about his story and how the science of reading fits into it all. For the next couple of episodes, I'm going to chat to some people who are probably less than known to educators in Australia, but I feel you will find them really interesting. The first one will be Rosanna Komisidu, a researcher from Cyprus who is focused on the implementation science and what that can look like in an educational setting. Following her will be Karen Zanatopoulos, an expert in the science of math and science of reading, and was a co-author of the book, How Children, Children Learn Math, The Science of Math Learning and Research and Practice, a book that I highly recommend. So, lots to look forward to, but for this episode, that's it. So, as always, stay curious, keep learning, and teach with purpose. Bye for now. <music>